Hello and welcome to another episode of the UK Airshow Review Podcast, the podcast we started when we had no airshows to review. My name is Sam Wise, aka Wissam24, and with me today are Tom Jones, Tommy on the forum, and Dominic Vickery, Dom Vickery on the forum. And also with us today is a special guest. Full time, he's the editor of Aeroplane Magazine, but will probably be best recognised by any UK airshow goer as one of the premier show commentators on the scene. It is, of course, Ben Donnell. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thank you very much indeed for having me. And uh, well, I'm extremely flattered by your uh, by your <laughs> description. It still seems awfully, uh, awfully sort of new to me, and as though I'm very inexperienced at uh, all of this. But uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Fantastic. I'm glad to hear it. Um, so obviously today we're going to chat with Ben about his work in aviation journalism and, of course, in the commentary booth. But I think it's apt that we, you know, quickly share our thoughts on the Shuttleworth Drive-In Show, which was announced at the beginning of this week. Um, more than anything, I think it's great to see air shows restarting. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, it, it, and it's also um, the first one of, of the decade. So um, added you know impetus. That? I had that tweaked with me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Um, who would have thought? But um, it's it's fantastic to see. Um, and it's uh, if it proves to be a workable concept, which, um, you know, fingers crossed it will be, and there's, there's no indication that it won't be, um, hopefully it's... Um, a uh, sort of a cause for a lot of optimism for our shows moving forwards. So um, not without some criticism by some people, but it's fantastic to see overall. <laughs> Absolutely, Sorry, just got a cat tail in John's yeah. camera. Sorry. <laughs> so I'm I'm a, I'm over the moon as well. I think I can't think of a better venue that, to start an air show season as we traditionally do anyway. Mm. Yeah, I, I suppose it's kind of apt, isn't it, that one of the first air shows in in the season, at, you know, that would be operating normally is is the would be the season premiere. Um, so seeing that Shuttleworth still manages to have the mantle of the first air show of the season um, is, uh, I suppose, it's not poetic, but it's you know, it's um, it's a nice thing to see. But it's very easy for Shuttleworth to do it because obviously all the parking is right in front of the crowd line. Mm. So it's very easy for them to do it on a, a, an allotted space for car basis. What do you make of the price? Um, I think there has to be a line of demarcation somewhere. And I, I personally, I do think it does slightly unfairly prejudice um, individuals who are going by car. The only concern I have um, is that given it's obviously... Um, uh, trying to maintain social distancing measures as, as best as possible um, whether that price might encourage separate households all to jump in the same car you know, three people to park up their own cars not far away and all jump into one car and, 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 and go there but um, at the same time I, I, I think it's easy to sort of complain about the price from an individual person um, because it's it's fantastic value for a family of four, or you know, or, or a family in general. So something has to be done. It would have been nice if if Shuttleworth could have perhaps had maybe a single person ticket and then um, a two or more ticket. But the, you know, there's going to be a line drawn somewhere. For me, it's a case of it. it that's how the, the format is. How it has to be done mm. with everything that's going on in the world. And I know what you're saying, but. The, presumably they've worked out how to best maximize the money from the event with the space they have available and the space they can allocate for it mm. and i think i said it on twitter i can't begrudge them making money 
or, or making as much money as they can to survive in this period? No, I don't think anyone can, and I think it's quite unfair of people who've been lamenting the loss of air shows um, to suddenly find, you know, um, uh, a gripe with the first air show that's on the calendar. I mean, the, the criticisms of the price are far outmatched by the um, credit they should be given for doing what they can in a completely new environment that no one really even expected last November or December. Um, so they, in a very short space of time, they completely changed their very, very traditional bedded-in airshow format. Um, and and you know, credit to them for that. Um, and I also think as well, on the price point, you know, some people have said they can't justify £50 um, for, a, for you know, what would be a single person in, in their own car turning up. Well, I think by this stage in the airshow season, I would have spent far more than £50 on, on you know, <laughs> if we're talking, you know, the single, the individuals are likely to be sort of the airshow regulars rather than a family going to their local airshow, then they're likely to have gone to other airshows in the calendar. Probably maybe, yeah, several, maybe a couple of Shuttleworths, and they would have spent much more than £50. So to me, the, the price is... Um, it's a shame that it couldn't have been worked out, but it's not a criticism of Shuttleworth that it hasn't. Um, yeah. And he, even if it was, it's um, you know credit to them for uh, for you know for completely uh, reorganising how they do air displays. And I really, really, really hope it's a success. Massively um, so. Not not to put you on the spot, but are you going to be going to the driving show, Ben? Not that one, no, because it clashes with the virtual Riyadh. Okay. But I am going to be doing the August the second. Is it the um, family air show which is also <laughs> going to be a drive-in one mm-hmm. um, and yeah it'll be very interesting to see how it works on the basis of the first one obviously I don't think there's realistically any other venue in the UK that I know of where you could do this sort of format because of the layout of the relays mm. um, and it also just as clearly has to only be a temporary format you cannot go on doing this sort of event in this in precisely this way long term but hopefully if things improve um, over the course of the rest of the season then they'll be able to resume the more standard format albeit I'd expect with an element of social distancing maybe for the September and the October shows but goodness knows at this point what will actually be possible mm. I mean, I, I I think it can only be a temporary because pres- presu- presumably the, the the money that they will be making off it, regardless, will be massively reduced over the numbers they could usually have in. I think as well, um, a, a couple of weeks ago, no one would have thought there would have been any air show in July at all. So, I mean, the the fact that there are ones taking place, I think, it's cause for optimism, um, whether or not it changes for the rest of the season. So, yeah, it'd be it'd be really interesting to see. But um, the fact that air shows are penciled to take place again is such a uh, a leap ahead of where we were just a couple of weeks ago it um, is yeah it is and i wasn't expecting personally anything to take place before september yeah exactly and i think they've done a terrific job coming up with a format that uh, that seems workable that will bring some revenue in crucially mm. and that will also enable their pilots and a small number of visiting pilots to be able to perform in public once again after a very long layoff. Mm. Yeah, well, absolutely. Should we take that note and start our, our interview proper, as it were? <laughs> um, I suppose let's let's. I think I think I've started every interview with I suppose, but um, which is not which is not very good. 
but maybe you could start at the beginning and let us know how you got into aviation and aviation journalism and all that side of things. Well, it's uh, it's something that's been around me and my family for as long as I can remember because my dad um, uh, has always been an aviation enthusiast and from the late 70s, early 80s onwards he was starting to take and sell photos at air shows to become involved as a volunteer at uh, the International Air Tattoo and to contribute to magazines and so I started going to air shows basically as soon as I was born. I think the first one I went to, funnily enough, was at Old Warden, which would have been early 1979, when I was probably three and a bit months old. Um, uh, and then, you know, as I grew up, I was taken to air shows generally in East Anglia, where I was growing up, so Old Warden, Duxford, Milton Hall, the odd other one. Really, it was from the age of 10 that it became a great interest for me and something I wanted to pursue a bit more and I started also through dad contributing to magazines and it's grown from there really uh, uh, obviously it hasn't always been my career uh, after university I worked as a researcher in parliament for a few years but then I was asked to join the editorial team of Aircraft Illustrated while that magazine was still in existence and ever since then, one way or another, I've been professionally engaged in aviation journalism, although I'd started aviation photojournalism at a, a very young age on a purely amateur basis. It's now been sort of well, more than 15 years full time in it. Okay. And the, the commentary side of things? Well, that was always something I was hugely interested in. I've always been very interested in um, in commentary, whether it be um, sports commentary, event commentary and so forth. And I'd always really wanted to get into airshow commentary because it was something I thought I might be able to do. And I also, for quite a long time, had ideas, as it were, as to how I thought airshow commentary should be what I enjoyed listening to, what I'd like to uh, hear people do more of. And I began to think, yeah, maybe it is something I could get into. My first idea was to write to Shuttleworth, who used a lot of commentators um, for different shows, and ask them if I could do one. And I just never got round to it. And then, <laughs> after React was cancelled in 2008, I heard through Peter March, my longtime friend and aviation journalist and photographer, that React were looking for a new commentary team. And Peter knew I'd been wanting to uh, have a go at it for ages. And he said, why don't you put yourself forward to Tim Prince, whom I already knew a bit. And it was literally no more than I asked Tim if I could be uh, considered. They said yes. And that was it. Wow. Fantastic. So you so you started right at the sort of you know the largest air show possible <laughs> in your your commentary career. It's a baptism of fire right there. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was. Um, and uh, feet first at the deep end. Yes, and I'd never broadcast before. I'd done a very very little bit of event hosting. Um, you know, at sixth form at university, <laughs> I hosted a thing. <laughs> Um, uh, in Parliament called Westminster Day or part of it where they used to have people from schools come in and talk to panels of politicians and 
journalists and so forth. Um, I hosted a bit of that, but I had no experience whatsoever of <laughs> broadcasting. And so it was a hell of a punt, really. <laughs> well, fair enough. In fact, two of the three of us who did React 2009 and then for the next few years had no broadcasting experience because obviously, because obviously Dan O'Hagan had lots of it as the lead commentator but Spiv Gare the other co-commentator and I had none at all so mm. yeah it was a real challenge I had some ideas as to how I would approach it we obviously sat down beforehand and discussed it um, as, um, as a team but not that much I think we maybe met up once prior to the show um, but other than that um, and the preparation I could do beforehand based on knowing what was going to be there and uh, uh, some of the uh, particular elements of that year's show um, it was all a case of just getting there and getting on with it what were your feelings say on the um, uh, you know on the Friday evening or the, the Saturday morning when, when that first show rolled around ah oh, well you see we did have the Friday as a bit of a practice oh right because okay. even though it wasn't the sort of not full Friday air show that it's become, but you know, the formalised Friday air show yeah. that it's become. We did commentate on the displays that took place on the Friday, you know, for Friat and whoever else was on the airfield. I forget actually who was being admitted to the airfield other than Friat at that stage, whether there was some kind of schools event or whoever it was, anyway. Um, mm. uh, so we did have a kind of soft lead-in to it on the Friday. Um, uh, my feelings, I was just excited really, I wasn't, I don't remember being nervous at all we felt very at ease right from the start as a team, which was fantastic, all got on really really well mm. and um, that was great, it was, a, it was a super way into it So, all right, so, so, so how, do they, how do those feelings uh, from Friday, how do they contrast with Sunday night? Oh, Sunday night though was the feeling that um, we'd uh, that we'd done it and that we'd done it probably about as well as could have been expected. I hope for a first time, and with none of us having commentated at an air show before, and two of us never having really broadcast before. Um, <laughs> it was a it was quite a fraught show. The weather was appalling for a great deal of it. Um, and there was the odd glitch along the way but we got through it and I think we felt we could only kind of grow from there really What do you think the lessons, well speaking of growing what do you think the lessons you've learned over the the years since then have been with commentating? Ooh, that's There's an awful lot um, because over time as you get more experience you get sort of asked to do different things in relation to commentaries at different venues which maybe we'll come on to later with some of the stuff at Duxford in particular and the um, the planning that goes into scenarios and show narratives and so forth so there's a natural evolution um, I'm less monotone than I was much less <laughs> monotone than I was um, uh, I'd never be a sort of trousers on fire Murray Walker type of uh, <laughs> but um, at, the, at the start occasionally you know I do watch things back um, and uh, I was quite I thought I was being formal at that mm -hmm. stage um, uh, and actually what I was being was quite grey 
and uh, it there's a way of being serious in commentary and sounding energised at the same time and I hadn't got that at that point that sort of came later with more experience and with more experience of different venues and working in different setups so that's certainly one thing um, there's lots of things you learn over time just by osmosis just just naturally I mean timing is certainly part of it um, and again this is maybe something we can discuss discuss further as we go on but um, there's nothing worse than getting sort of caught in mid-sentence by something running in um, and there are ways you sort of learn ways of dealing with that situation of something mm. happening sooner particularly sooner because you know you can always fill in if something happens slower than expected but if something happens sooner than expected mm. um, you know you sort of develop the strategies over time of coming up with a way of making it sound reasonably natural that you're not suddenly taken by surprise because to my mind there's little less that sounds sort of more how can I put this that that sounds um, uglier to the listener than the sort of uh, and this goes for any sort of commentary than the sort of oh yeah up 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 and that you're taken totally by surprise by mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. um, and you don't have a sort of elegant way of dealing with that I mean elegance probably a bit isn't it? But uh, you know what I mean. It's um, yeah. uh, uh, you learn the strategies for dealing with uh, with that. Are there any moments or mistakes or sort of things like that that y keep keep you up at night, remembering them in a sort of the small hours of the night? The, the thing about airshow commentary that keeps you up at night, and I gather this is the same with people who work in any sort of um, uh, element of, of of commentary, whether um, uh, whether TV, radio, or event, is um, the anxiety dream about being late to the <laughs> venue. Yeah, everyone I think has those sort of anxiety dreams where you're where you wake up late, miss your alarm, and you have to run to get to work. <laughs> have you ever had that with an air show? I I nearly did at uh, Cleethorpes last year. Um, uh, because there were loads of trains cancelled, and I got there with I think three or four minutes before the flight <laughs> started. Um, uh, but uh, that was the closest I've ever, I've ever got to that. Um, but no, in terms of, sort of terrible um, uh, mistakes, I mean it's things like bits of music cutting off because there's been a momentary power outage, um, uh, bits of audio not working, technical problems of one sort or another but you know nothing nothing particularly major springs to mind has there ever been any aircraft performances that's taken you by surprise and you weren't expecting to do that or something like that to happen tons um uh, i mean i'm rubbish at reading ribbon diagrams <laughs> absolute rubbish at them i much prefer to have the maneuvers written out um, someone did try and take me through a, a booklet of arresty figures um, uh, <laughs> but uh, no and especially with some you know especially some of the more intricate ones are very hard to um, understand um, oh but you know it, it happens it actually of course with the regulations as they've been post 2015 
um, there's less like that that will take you by surprise. Okay. Uh, because, of course, pretty much everyone has to have, has to submit a routine now, yeah. uh, or something approaching a routine. Obviously, for, you know, a very sedate display by an historic aircraft, you know, it is still possible to um, uh, uh, say a sequence of fly pasts and turns, but that doesn't really matter. In terms of the aerobatic, it doesn't matter from a commentary point of view is what I mean. In terms of aerobatic manoeuvres, there are a lot, there are lots and lots of occasions where it, uh, for one reason or another, doesn't go as you planned. But again, you've got to find a way out of that. And most people won't notice, frankly, the difference. Mm -hmm. Going to air shows as a commentator, do you sometimes go to air shows and um, miss going as a layman, or do you? I mean, do you still get to to, to attend air shows, or oh, yeah. do you think, well, see, since you're here, you know? Oh yeah, um, I I I, uh, I go to as many air shows as I can, um, uh, just to spectate or to report for the magazine, um, uh, and you know, particularly overseas ones. Uh, I, I like having weekends off. You know, they do become increasingly precious as the seasons get busier and busier but no I do still go and I still greatly enjoy it and I don't necessarily miss being behind the microphone because I'd probably be there anyway mm. it's not always the case you don't you know there are there are events I've done in the past where I probably wouldn't have been there anyway but that's all part of the all part of the business and it is very interesting to see a variety of different venues, a variety of different types of show, how different flying display directors go about their work and so forth. And building that experience of the display scene is enormously valuable and enormously interesting. Of course. You, you, you mentioned earlier about um, having learnt over the years about different commentary styles for different venues and that sort of thing. Could you give us an idea of, of what you mean by that and, and what is required of the difference between, say, a Riat and an Old Warden and, and any show in between? Um, well, yes, I can. It's, it's a bit difficult to describe because one other thing, of course, is you get you tend to get put with another commentator. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for example, at Old Warden, there's no sort of demarcation between lead commentator and second commentator. So you don't really have... Um, uh, you know, both of you have got to speak. Uh, otherwise, there's no point the other person being there. So, obviously, Old Warden uh, is a very knowledgeable audience and I think demands probably less commentary than a heavy metal modern military show. Okay. Um, whether or not that's uh, I, I always achieve that there, I'm not sure. Um, so that's one side of it. It's quite difficult because you know you, as an individual, you have a natural way of talking and a natural way of broadcasting anyway. So that's always going to come across wherever it is you happen to be working. Um, Duxford is different again because of the style of event that has developed, particularly the um, the IWM's Warbird events or Warbird-orientated events over recent years, where we now build in a lot of archive speeches and music. And that mm. demands a different approach, which is one of the things I find most pleasurable 
across all the air shows I do. Um, um, but again, that's perhaps something that we could uh, we could talk about separately. Um, there's a there are big differences in the seafront shows. I haven't done an awful lot of seafront shows, but there, I think you probably need to bring in less technical detail. Um, you might not need to um, talk quite as much um, because you know you're never sure quite how much of the audience's attention is on having a nice day out at the seaside on the aircraft on the commentary um, but it's horses for courses you know there may be things at seafront shows not necessarily the ones I've done in the past but some of the other ones that do demand more explanation and a more structured sure. approach along the lines of that which we use at Riyadh, which we use at Duxford in a different way. Um, it's probably not a very good answer to your question because there is so much of it that's in your individual style anyway and that's going to be reflected wherever you're working. Um, but yeah, there are, there are subtle differences and I think the seafront events are probably the ones that demand the, the most different approach. How good I am at that, I'm not certain. Did when you first became an airshow commentator, um, and you're talking about different styles and developing that, um, did some of the old hands at the time um, give you some sort of advice? And what was that, or were you just sort of left to grow on your own? Or we were left to grow on our own. Um, uh, uh, I didn't approach anyone. Um, there was only one current commentator at that time which was Sean Maffert, Sean Maffert oh, and yeah. Melvin Hiscock as well but um, those two were the only two I really knew at that time who were still current um, and so yeah it was a case really of, uh, of finding our own feet. I'm sure there's a lot of crossover with your with your day job but how do you go about doing the research for your commentary particularly if, at a show where there might be participants announced very last minute? All sorts of sources. Um, stuff I do for the magazine definitely helps, and also the work I've done on Combat Aircraft magazine on the modern military side helps. Having a good reference library is also invaluable, particularly for historic aeroplanes. Um, and other reliable print and online sources for particularly modern military and modern civil. Because one thing that often... One thing I was sort of anxious to do right from the start, particularly starting at Riyadh, was to avoid the thing that can happen when talking about modern military types and to you know, the lesser extent modern civil types, whereby a commentary on them can sound exactly the same from one yes. year to the next and that they take no... Uh, you need to take into account, for example, what modern military aircraft have been doing on mm. operations over the past few months. Um, and obviously, during the period I've been commentating, there has been an awful lot of that to bring in. Mm. So commentary has got to remain fresh and remain different. And apart from what you might do with your own style, with the presentation of a show and so forth, I think it's also got to be topical and up to the minute. And so I do try and 
build that in with modern military aircraft. And of course, the latest on colour schemes and restorations with historic aeroplanes, any new information that might occasionally be found out about a particular historic aeroplane can be built in for those as well. You've never, you haven't had, uh, I'm presuming, a moment where you sort of said something in commentary and then someone said, actually, that's not the case. Oh, here's, here's the correct answer. Have you? Oh, there's, there's loads of those. There's loads of those. I mean, one of the, and again, this isn't something that really happens now. Um, but I do remember once at, uh, at Riyadh, I think it was probably 2013, maybe the first year I took over as lead commentator there. Mm. It was a manufacturer's aircraft of some kind, and um, maybe it was 14, maybe it was a Farnborough year, it was being shared with Farnborough, anyway, whatever it was, um, uh, I got all the paperwork for it, but they hadn't been through the flight centre, the facility where the commentators are based in the days prior to us moving over to the commentary box, where you, you know, once the um, uh, air crews have been through you know, seeing the flying control committee, seeing the display director and so forth, they come to us so that we can um, get the latest information on them if we're commentating on them ourselves, because of course quite a lot of them come with their own commentators and um, but we hadn't seen this particular manufacturer aircraft's crew come through there and we spoke to the FDD, I think it was beforehand, and he said who he thought which of the three possible pilots was going to be flying it that day? And so I said it over, <laughs> the, um, uh, over the PA and had a call from the uh, chairman of the Flying Control Committee saying, who do you think was flying that? And I said, well, it was so-and-so. <laughs> he said, because we think it was the other pilot. Um, <laughs> now, of course, that wouldn't normally happen with a modern military Aircraft, but it could, it can with the manufacturer's aircraft. It can, it could to some extent with, um, uh, um, uh, with, with quite a lot of civilian aircraft. But uh, yes, that was an interesting one. Oh yeah, you get things wrong all, the t all the time. You know, um, uh, even with your very best efforts to be accurate, you're always going to be in those situations where you say something that you immediately know is wrong, <laughs> <laughs> and there's no way of elegantly unsaying it. It's not worth it's not worth backpedaling over it either. You just have to no, take the hit and try no. take the cringe and try and move on. Exactly. Yeah. How do you find working with uh, display items own commentators? Do you sort of leave them to it or Yeah, you, you mainly have to because most of them now have a script and that is the script and that's what they read out. Is that why the Americans is the aircraft are ours? Oh yeah, no, our our aircraft. Yeah, your your F your F twenty two. Yeah, your air force in your Britain. Force. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, no, and that uh, that you know that's what they're comfortable uh, doing, or or it's what they've been directed to do. And so generally, um, you have to leave them to it. Uh, also, I tend to take the view with a guest commentator that. Uh, for whatever reason that item has felt the need to bring its own commentator therefore they should be able to commentate on it themselves mm -hmm. um, but it's sometimes very good to obviously bring in a guest voice specifically um, uh, to talk with expertise about mm. something and there are, there are there's the odd opportunity to be able to um, uh, 
to do that. For example, Duxford's RAF 100 show in September 2018, Rod Dean was able to join us for quite a bit of the um, the show to talk about the aircraft that he had experience of. And that was fantastic. That sort of thing I really like, um, uh, especially if it's someone you know well, because um, uh, you can have a nice informal chat with them and it just works and it sounds yeah. comfortable. Um, uh, there's no sort of forced bonhomie involved, and um, uh, that's something I uh, I always enjoy doing. There aren't necessarily that many opportunities for that, but we try and build them in. And of course, as you get to know more people, you can wheel them into the box. I mean, again at Duxford, we had Stu Goldspink in with us to talk about a Harvard formation a few years ago. Just it's a change of voice and it's an authoritative first-hand perspective. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had the situation where um, a display team or display item has had their own commentator? You've been expecting a commentator to turn up and, and none has, and you've had to do something impromptu? Oh, yes. Um, uh, you, you know, you have that occasionally because of um, illness um, at the last minute, or because with some civilian teams, maybe they've taken a very late booking for that show and their commentator or commentators are otherwise engaged um, and uh, uh, I think it even happened at Riyadh with Al Fazan from the UAE oh, right. in 2012 yeah. um, that uh, it turned out they never normally have a commentator um, <laughs> and they did send someone to join us as I recall um, uh, who was extremely sort of nervous basically um, mm. as to um, what to do but uh, I do feel that for the the national teams you know having their own commentator is um, uh, is beneficial mm. I don't necessarily feel it's beneficial for all items but I do feel it's beneficial for the national or the big teams you know Brightling mm. Jet Team, Blades mm. that sort of outfit What's your thought on music as part of air show displays and throughout the commentary it shouldn't be used as a constant sound bed um, at all I, I think that sounds <laughs> we never have that particularly in the UK I mean all of you have been to mainland European displays yeah. where mm. they do do that mm. um, and quite honestly sometimes the effect is unintentionally Comical. <laughs> um, I remember. I forget even where it was, but at a mainland European show um, about ten or fifteen years ago, where a Spitfire was, as a result of you know music just being on constantly throughout the display, sort of indiscriminately, where a solo Spitfire was performing to "Love Today" by Mika. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dom and I have very, um, let's just call them strong memories of going to uh, Milan last year with some constant 1940s sort of, I don't even know what you call it, the sort of 1940s, you know, the, the glamour girls singing in the background, just the same song all day, both days, non-stop. And uh, yeah, it... it, it, it I don't want to say it made us resent the flying, but it didn't do it any You've got to use music carefully um, in a flying display. I used to actually think 
you shouldn't tend to use it at all. Um, uh, and as time's gone on, I've realised how it can be, hopefully, and it's not for me to decide really, it's for others to think, um, uh, how it can be used well. Um, and it, it shouldn't be cliched, ideally. Um, yes, definitely. Uh, there are circumstances where there's a kind of expectation that you will use a particular piece of music for something. Um, uh, I'd like to try and avoid those if possible, but there are some that are obvious, but that you know are obvious for a reason. And so again, I keep coming back to Duxford. That's where we probably use most music, or at least most music that we choose. A lot of uh, modern military acts, even if they don't have their own commentator, they may well want to have their own music. I mean, I, I, it definitely has its place. I remember. Uh, going back a few years now but it was the, the D-Day show 2014 at Duxford and I remember one of the most moving things I've ever seen at an air show was all the gliders and their, their tugs taking off with the music from I think it's the end of the first episode of Band of Brothers uh, very very appropriate and worked very very well in my opinion. Thank you very much and that, that yeah I mean that leads on to what I was saying about Duxford neatly um, uh, because that's the place where um there's particularly that's the place where there's a creative satisfaction to be had about how you form a narrative and uh, we'd started sort of in 2013 introducing a bit of music to the commentary just to see how it went down obviously having checked with the IWM beforehand that they were happy and they said yes yes you know um, uh, fine if appropriate so we used a bit of music at the show in May 13 uh, we used some of the Pearl Harbor music on the P40B we used some of the Band of Brothers music on the C47 pair um, and it seemed to go down very well it wasn't something that had been done at Duxford before I was really sort of taking a few cues from La Ferte Alley where I think music is used very well um, and so for 14 without it sort of being a, a conscious effort on the part of the organisers to give the opportunity to use music and archive recordings and so forth we um, built into the flying display certain moments where we felt that that would enhance what people were seeing. And the gliders was a good example of that because it was a terrific idea to have that glider sequence because otherwise yeah. you, know, you weren't going to be able to depict the, um, um, the work of the troop carrying gliders on D-Day. Oh, I, th I, I thought that was fantastic. It was great, and it was typical of the sort of thing that Jan Fraser, as flying display director, did at Duxford, and which, which um, Jeff Brindle and Rod Dean still still do now. Um, and it struck me beforehand that a sequence of okay, you could just say this is a Piper Super Cub towing up a Slingsby Petrel, and this is another Piper Super Cub towing up a, um, a Slingsby Prefect, and so forth. But in and of itself is this going to really hold the attention? There's something more we could do here. So we used some music, sort of suitably, hopefully, of rousing music for the toe off the grass. And then we had some archive recordings I found of um, uh, BBC reports from the D-Day period about going into battle in horses and Hadrian's and so forth. And it 
seem to go down very well and then again we use music and recordings with the C47s at the end of the show and reception was very sort of gratifying really and then that was it kind of led into the IWM deciding to go for a more very deliberately structured approach to the flying in 2015 for the VE Day and the Battle of Britain shows that year um, whereby the displays were specifically tailored to a narrative and we started building up a commentary narrative including music, including speeches from the IWM sound archive specially mm -hmm. researched um, to be able to bring all that together and of course it doesn't always work as you'd want um, because all sorts of factors can mean the aircraft don't appear in the sequence that would be ideal Sure. Um, so pilot availability, the need to have adequate separation at somewhere like Duxford between acts um, might dictate the order to some extent. Obviously also aircraft having other commitments, that was an issue that weekend, um, uh, which meant that the Sunday programme was sort of out of sequence. But you can still bring the story back to this and bring it forward again to that and it works. And um it was it was a very very it was very satisfying to be involved with all of that and i would love to see more of it and duxford still do that i think extremely well these days these scenarios that are tailored into a theme like the uh film flying stuff that they did last september um uh, uh that was a lovely opportunity to be able to uh play some nice music and to tell some of the stories around the involvement of these aircraft in the filming rather than just those aircraft themselves. We were talking about, so Duxford 2013, Duxford 2014, the, the spring air shows. I think from memory, the spring air show in, it's not called the spring air show now, but in 2014 was the first two-day event and they, I think that year was when the October air show was, was dropped in favour of that two-day event in spring. That's correct, yeah. Um, do you think that's changed the the narrative of those shows into a more family friendly um, affair, which obviously has its its positives, but might be less um, appealing? Well, I was going to say his, you know, historically sort of um, themed. You know, it's less. It, I'm trying to find <laughs> where the question is. It a, broad, a broader theme. Yeah, that was um, a later change, really, because they carried on doing the themed May events until sixteen. And mm. then, with a change of uh, of team, uh, they decided to make the May show the current air festival format, which is a more family friendly show, still with themed elements within the flying, but not giving it a specific historical theme, and then saving that for the September show. Yeah. I personally think that the um, uh, that combination is an obvious one to differentiate the two events and so in September you know you're going to have a show with none of the civilian aerobatic acts barnstorming items and so forth in it um, uh, whereas in May you will have those mixed in with smaller numbers than usual of the base or that used to be the case of the based warbirds a bit more military participation maybe but still I think some very choice historic acts, things like the Norsemen and the Sea Vixen and the 
C3605 have been to those shows, don't forget. So I think it's, it's, it's quite an obvious different way of differentiating between those two events. How, um, sort of researching the, the historical narrative of a particular event, I, I imagine obviously much of it is driven by participants confirmed, of course, but if you've got a, a very clear idea, for example, this year would have been you know, Battle of Britain 80th, um, how soon in a, in a normal year will you start trying to think of ways in which you can enhance what you probably think is probably likely to, to, to display at those particular air shows? Well, it, I mean, from months beforehand, um, often, and don't forget, of the shows I do, um, uh, or that I do as lead commentator, only really Duxford, and uh, sometimes at React with some of the Battle of Britain scenarios, is there really the opportunity to do that? And then, they, you know, I'm obviously involved with Cosford and Biggin Hill as well, mm. where those type of things have been built in, and that's been very satisfying as as, as well. Working with Andy Pawsey at those two um, events on the uh, some of the themed displays there, but generally to take Duxford again as if you don't mind as the example, Please because do. that's the one where um, uh, where there's the most opportunity, as I say, to do that. Um, for example, this year uh, I had a meeting not long you know, three or or so weeks before lockdown with Rod Dean, the flying display coordinator and Jeff Brindle, the display director um, going through ideas for this year's show now obviously as things are turning out it won't be possible to uh, put some of those into operation purely because of aircraft availability and some of the practicalities of, um, uh, uh, of of what's possible but generally at Duxford we'll have meetings in the spring with the relevant people to thrash it out and they're very good at taking on board ideas and some of those have reached fruition over time which is always very very satisfying but they're so good anyway there at coming up with things that um that work in that respect and so yeah that process begins on a general level several months prior however there's no point really going into detailed planning of a commentary narrative for an item or in the case of the Duxford events for a whole show until you've got the first draft of the flying programme Mm. Um, and obviously the timing of that can vary because only then can you weave everything together in the way that you need to and very often with late changes I'll be sort of finessing that as people say nowadays um, <laughs> uh, the evening before the show if the programme's changed, if the content's had to change for any reason um, and you know, switching the music around in the sequence and what have you um, uh, but yeah, that's all part and parcel of it I hope this isn't too glib of a question but are there any acts or particular displays over the years that you've come out the end of it and thought, wow, I can't believe I got to commentate on that? Uh, it's a really good question and yeah, there are um, uh, and uh, one of the, I mean, not just acts but entire shows um, the first Fly Navy at Shuttleworth in 2016 was one, even mm. though they hadn't sorted out the uh, display line exemption by then. It was just one of those things that uh, <laughs> that happens once in a blue moon, that you have mm. a gorgeous day, a quite sensational array of aeroplanes, 
um, and also a, a display that in terms of content had changed very little from when I first heard about what they were planning to do. There were a few things that dropped uh, that dropped off, but that was uh, that was very special. Um, I mean, some of the other things are the I mean the big Spitfire sequences at Duxford, um, but then I don't really commentate on those. I tend to, in fact, always introduce them and then leave it quiet for however long it takes, really. Um, even if it's half an hour, there's no need to um, to talk over that. Um, so yes, it's it's things like that. It's um, it's always great to commentate on a debut display, the P1 at Riat in um, 2015. 2015 was terrific, and my personal favourite, which I've got to do several times now, the Flying Bulls Sycamore. Um, yes. which I yeah. first did on Red Bull TV at Zeltweg in 2016, which was one of my favourite jobs ever, by the way. That was <laughs> that was awesome. Um, and one of the best shows I've ever been to, without question, that edition of Air Power. Uh, and then to get to uh, talk about it again at Cosford and at Yeobleton in 2018 <laughs> was just phenomenal. I adore that aeroplane. I think it's yeah. I think it's terrific. That was it. Very, very popular its appearances here. We we loved it. That funnily enough, that I think can very conveniently leads into another one of our questions we've got. Um which is that on an, one of the older episodes of display frequency you once mentioned that you did a commentary or you mentioned you once did commentary at a show in Norway. Presumably you've done quite a few abroad now. Yeah. What's what's that like? Are there any challenges involved? What do you have to, do, you, do you have to think anything particularly different about doing shows abroad? A, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I've now done about five or six in Norway. Um, uh, obviously, air power was a bit different because that was for English language TV. Um, and I've done one in Germany as well. Um, and it's... Uh, the Norwegian ones were... <laughs> <laughs> the Norwegian ones was you know, all in their different ways really memorable um, uh, I it started out as a result of the Norwegian Air Force Historical Squadron coming over to Britain in 2011 and uh, getting to know them and Martin Tesley who came um, over who was at that time still sort of converting to the vampire, he was an F-16 pilot then he did the commentary very very well I might add for the vampires at Duxford that weekend, and uh, his it, was, it would have been three three eight squadron, wouldn't it? The Tiger squadron, yeah. And he was on three three eight at the time, and they obviously were hosting the next NATO Tiger meet, and I was asked to commentate, provide English language commentary at that at Erland, and then Kenneth Ogvisler, the team leader of the historical squadron, asked. If I could commentate at the Bernd Balken air show at Hjevik in Christiansand um, before the Tiger meet, and I said, "Well, okay, but you've got to put a Norwegian guy with me because, okay, all Scandinavians speak fabulous English, but there will be people whose English is not so good, and in the event of an emergency, there needs to be yes. someone, someone else." And uh, they didn't know who it was going to be until the morning of the show, when this um, Norwegian um, military reservist PR man called Ola Christiansen turned up. He'd never commentated on an air show in his life. 
Um, and, uh, <laughs> and we got on famously. And we've since done, I think, four or five events there together. Oh, brilliant. And he was hilarious. He seemed actually more interested in talking to me in English than doing the Norwegian <laughs> <laughs> commentary. And there's a bit um, there's a bit on YouTube of that show at uh, Hjevik where um, I think it's a, a formation of Saab Safirs is displaying. And I've finished my bit and I'm expecting him to, um, uh, um, to come in with some Norwegian. And instead of which he doesn't realise the microphone's still on and says to me, Soto Voce, Ben, why are they painted yellow? Hello. <laughs> um, um, he was hilarious, and he was so lovely to work with. And we did we did that show at um, Kievik, which was a brilliant show where Ken Okvisla was the display director as well as flying in it. This was, of course, Norway, Norway's centenary of military aviation, so they had loads of shows in 2012. Mm-hmm. And um, and yes, and Ken was the FDD. Um, um, apart from when he was flying in the show in a very long slot with all sorts mm-hmm. of mixed formations of vampires and spitfires and spitfires and F-16s and vampires and F-16s, um, uh, it was it was it was absolutely super. It was a really really good event. And then did the Tiger Meet with two other commentators, including Ola, hoisted on a scissor lift. Um, uh, about 60 feet into the air in a howling gale in an air temperature of <laughs> I think it was about 5 degrees this was in the middle of June Gosh, <laughs> it, it was uh, no uh, contact with air traffic at all <laughs> uh, and not a clue what was happening but that was fun and then we did another and then one of these, I forget which one it was I was asked if I'd do the show at Ondoya, the P3 base in the Arctic Circle um, and I said, okay, well, as long as Ola's with me again. And uh, he was. And we had, again, a, a tremendous time there. Um, and you, know, you asked, do you do it differently? A bit less, bit less detail, I think, probably, because some of it, um, uh, there's, you need to bear in mind the risk of things getting lost in translation for those whose English is not as good. Um, but yeah, and since then had some. I've done Ondoya twice now. Um, the second time with a guy I first met when he came over on the P3 crew to East Fortune um, a few years earlier. He was my co-commentator <laughs> there last time. Fabulous, fabulous venue, and got flown home on the P3, which was very nice. Wow, fantastic! To Lossy Mouth, and then. <laughs> Had a very long journey home. Um, <laughs> Hail a taxi or something. <laughs> yes, uh, it's a very uh, expensive Uber. <laughs> yes, um, but uh, no, so there, there is the odd, um, uh, the odd difference. But uh, generally, they're very professionally run. And um, uh, my German experience at, was at Tankosch, the big fly-in at Tannheim in 2013, which was again one of the most satisfying jobs I've ever. Had working with a German team. I speak a bit of German, so I did a bit of commentary in German as well. And um, it was a shame the event ended as it did with the accident, some of you may remember, to the replica Udet Flamingo, um, which left the runway on departure. There was this sort of mass departure, obviously mainly a fly-in, some air display. They had to call off all the air displays on the final day because there was a storm coming in and a lot of people wanted to get home and um, the Flamingo left the runway and went into 
a line of parked aircraft and some people and a couple of people were were hurt and so sadly that brought the event to a, a rather premature conclusion but uh, up to that point it had been an immensely satisfying lovely team there and such a shame that was the last of those events I'd have loved to have gone on commentating there it was it was tremendous and the welcome I received from the team there with Thorena Doldera and Matthias Doldera the former Red Bull Air Race pilot uh, who run the airfield there was just tremendous absolutely lovely place I adored it if, if we can um, I'd like to also talk about sort of your career in aviation journalism so um, the magazine side of things of course um, People, some people have said, in my opinion, slightly unfairly, that aviation magazines are, s are losing uh, relevance in the days of the immediacy of news through social media and whatever else. Um, how, how do you think that magazines can stay current? Or, or what do you think the future is alongside social media? I think the future is as regards news reporting. You know, I can only really talk for my own thoughts on historic aviation magazines. Yes, I, don't know, yeah. I, I don't know what people are really thinking about modern civil, modern military, GA um, uh, publications. But um, what we're trying to do is, rather than just report, this has happened, this has happened, this has happened, to provide a bit more depth than you would get. That's the crucial thing, is the depth that you can um, achieve. Uh, okay, what you, you're losing something in immediacy by coming out as a monthly magazine, but what you can gain is the sort of uh, depth of coverage, the historical insights that you can add to that um, uh, in a print magazine using professional journalists. And I think that's how we can stay relevant, so that it's not just a, this has made its first flight um, uh, on whichever date, and here's a photo of it. Um, it's providing some of the historical background and I still um, and maybe this is just as a consequence of um, uh, me not keeping as up to date as I might with all forms of social media but I still when our news editor sends in our news section there are things in there that I haven't previously heard about yes um, yeah that's very true and so mm -hmm. uh, you've got to have someone dedicated to doing that amount of digging um, uh, and so that is how we can stay relevant, I feel, on the news side, moving away from short news items towards more mini news features. Um, that aside, I think there's obviously, again, a, a depth and an authority that we can achieve in the sort of long-form features that we do, um, uh, again, with all the sort of benefits of professionalism that you get through working on a, um, mm. um, uh, on a print title and producing something that crucially is nice to look at and nice to read um, uh, and that's how I have you know attempted to evolve Aeroplane and how I hope we'll be able to carry on evolving and carry on furthering that process in the future. I was reading in this month's uh, Fly Pass magazine, sorry to, um, to, to plug a rival magazine, <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just really just really put my foot in it as I said it, I was reading in this month's magazine though that um, the few have now become one and it sort of, it strikes me that um, the Second World War will, will always have a place in historic aviation just be, because of what it was, 
but much like the f we had with the First World War uh, a decade or two decades ago, living survivors are, are, are rapidly, unfortunately, um, passing away. Um, my question is, you must have met some, some larger-than-life characters who are no longer with us, or you must have uh, hoped to have met someone that you, that you sadly didn't manage. Is there anyone in particular who stands out as someone you would like to speak to again? Um, or have interviewed the first time around? Oh, that's a very, very good question. I, um, there are lots of, um, there are lots of figures. You mentioned Second World War veterans in that context. I, the ones that spring to, to my mind are not necessarily people just known for being Second World War veterans or at all. I was very privileged in 2010 to meet six Battle of Britain veterans in August that year at the RAF club for a number of one-to-one -one interviews and that was an astonishing experience including Geoffrey Wellham and Tom Neal and um, a number of other very well-known names um, and that was exceptionally moving I was exceptionally privileged to have that uh, uh, have that opportunity and of course there are many many other um, Second World War veterans that it would have been nice to have met. I, was, um, I would... The ones that... I mean, I would obviously have loved to have interviewed some of the great post-war test pilots who are no longer around. Neville Duke, mm. Bill Bedford. I never met either of those. Only met Winkle Brown very fleetingly on one occasion, but then others have more than done him justice over the years. Um, uh, yes, oh, there are there are so many. There are so many that I would have loved to have got around to um, uh, having the opportunity to talk to, but I feel very, uh, again to use the word, very honoured to have met those that I have done, whether they're military veterans, whether they're people, so very interesting figures from aircraft preservation. Um, mm. And, I mean... If I may diverge a bit from that, if you don't mind. The one I am most pleased I got to talk to before he passed away was Connie Edwards. Um, the famed film pilot who, of course, famously got basically gifted by the Spaniards, the fleet <coughs> of Bouchons that took part in the Battle of Britain movie. Um, I had toyed with the idea of trying to see him uh, a few times, but thought, well, it's never really going to be practical. And then I heard from Cole Pope at the Aircraft Restoration Company, who knew Connie from his visits, his previous visits to uh, to Duxford, that he'd be coming over for the uh, RAF 100 show um, as a guest of Richard and Carolyn Grace in September 2018. And Cole knew of my interest in talking to Connie. And to cut a long story short, fixed it up. And Connie was there all weekend watching the show, including four of the Bouchons. And then the day after the show, I went to London and had about three hours with him in the bar at the Mayfair Hotel, <laughs> hearing his incredible, incredible stories um, of not just the Battle of Britain filming, but an amazing array of other flying mm. activities far too many to mention now um, and it, it seems a bit invidious to single him out above the other people 
I've interviewed in the series I do every month in Aeroplane. Um, but I do have to say that he, getting to you know to have a, a long interview with him. Um, and just to hear that wonderful Texan voice um, <laughs> telling these <laughs> uh, these these amazing tales of uh, of daring do in aviation, uh, things like his brother falling out of a Ryan PT twenty two during a <laughs> barrel roll, <laughs> um, uh, things like his how can we put this his 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 paramilitary flying in p thirty eights and c forty sixes um uh his um or the captain of a c forty six he was co piloting in honduras um uh, falling extremely ill and subsequently um uh dying um of malaria uh, during a flight and Connie having to take over um, uh, yeah, just <laughs> unbelievable uh, an amazing man an extremely funny man a very nice man as well um, uh, he, he was exceedingly pleasant um, uh, and six months later just over six months later uh, yeah, eight months later I think uh, early May if, if I remember rightly 2019 he died and um uh, I, I was i was delighted of course, of course i would have would have loved to have had uh, uh had longer i would I would also have loved incidentally it would have probably involved an interpreter um uh, i would have loved to have interviewed someone else who was heavily involved in the battle of britain film pedro santa cruz who was the chief test pilot for hispano aviacion uh and a veteran of the spanish civil war mm. um uh, uh, I've heard so much about him from other pilots who flew in the filming uh, whom I've spoken to several um, and sadly he's long gone I would have loved to have talked to him though What advice would you give to anyone who is wanting to get into aviation journalism now? This is an interesting question because I do get asked this and it's extremely difficult to answer um because there is no one way the best advice is certainly not to approach an editor and say is there anything I can do for you <coughs> because with the best will in the world the answer to that is going to be a gentle well no there's not because I don't know what you can do <laughs> um the best way is to submit something and take it from there, but to really look carefully at what you're submitting. Um, make it something that you feel only you could do that well. Um, whether it's an interview with someone, a particular take on something, maybe it's using your language skills to take advantage of archive sources that someone who only speaks English is able to take advantage of. Those sort of ways strike me as more useful than the kind of general approach which is more likely to result in a negative response. Not because you won't be any good at it, but because without knowing you I have no idea what it is that you might be able to do well and there are people who've um, been in touch with me in that way over the years um, uh, a, who have demonstrated that they're able to do something particularly well I mean, very often it's just a case of 
is how good's the copy um if someone submits something and it's not uh, you know on spec and it's not really something i'd want to use but they can clearly write you know there's obviously potential there and maybe mm. that can be used and channeled in different ways um i think we're probably just about getting to the end of the time we would we would want for the podcast but i think maybe wheeling back round to air shows now what do you think the future of the airshow industry holds, both both from the point of view as as a, an aviation enthusiast and as someone inside the industry? Uh, well, there are two ways of looking at it. One is the short-term post-COVID-19 future, and the other is the longer-term than that future. It's very hard to say because when you look at reporting on airshows from sort of 30, 40 years hence, um, a lot of the same complaints get brought up time and time again. Oh, there's less variety. Display distances are. <laughs> I mean, people were complaining about the display line at Farnborough being too far away in the 60s. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, so I tend to kind of think that what goes around comes around, and that there is there are inevitably going to be. Um, criticisms mm, it, it, it's a very very big question at the moment it's impossible to predict how things are going to go with the pandemic isn't it um, mm, yeah. uh, will we see a second spike will we be able to return before the end of this season to, to a greater degree of normality as regards public attendance at uh, large events I'm quite heartened by the number of this is going, I'm going to be a bit I'm going to jump around a bit um, here yeah, so fine. forgive me if this isn't all that coherent but <laughs> firstly in terms of the post covid-19 response I'm heartened by the number of events I see already confirming mm. they're going to have a show for next year and obviously nothing can never be totally totally certain Mm. But I am heartened by the number of shows I'm I'm seeing mm. you know, confirming dates for next year, particularly among the council-funded seafront shows. Now, obviously, we lost a couple of seafront shows before coronavirus for non-pandemic reasons, Air and Port Rush. Um, in the Port Rush case, um, it being cited that the local council could no longer afford to um, to fund it or that it took the decision to no longer fund it and given the pressure that local authority budgets are under and are going to be under after the pandemic it would be quite easy for some of them to uh, to say we're no longer going to support the staging of an air show but actually quite a lot of them as I'm sure you've all seen already have confirmed we're going ahead next year so that mm. at the moment is a very positive sign. Um, I would desperately hope that we don't end up in a similar situation around the same time of year, March, April time, next year, with any further wave of the virus, if there's no treatment or no vaccine um, available. So it, it's very difficult to predict the future in that regard. If we do get back up and running, in some semblance of normality I don't think there's 
any reason to think that we won't continue to see what, to me, is the very exciting development of the historic scene, the piston engine historic scene. There are a lot of very interesting restoration projects that um, uh, will hopefully bear fruit in the next few years. And I'm very optimistic about that aspect of it. Um, aircraft come, aircraft go, of course. But as long as we keep a good core of certain key types to go with the new arrivals that we're going to be seeing, I think there are very good grounds for optimism. When I think of the things we've been able to see in the last 10 or 15 years, they're things I would never have ever imagined seeing. Yeah. Who would yeah. have thought we'd ever see a flying DH-9? Who would have thought we'd <laughs> yeah. have five bouchons in formation? None of them in Spanish markings. But. Yeah, oh, well, who knows, who knows? Um, I didn't even know what a Curtis Hawk 75 was until the Fighter <laughs> Collections one arrived in, or, or, or flew in 2005. Um, mm. Yeah, absolutely tremendous that we've been able to see this range of aeroplanes. Yeah. And I see... I see great positives for that section of the scene. The strength of the modern military display scene is much harder to predict. Um, I, you know, as an enthusiast and as a commentator, dearly wish we could go back to um, some of the operational scenarios that uh, used to be commonplace at some British military air shows, Mildenhall particularly, uh, and which nowadays we only really see at Yeovilton, um, mm -hmm. uh, and which we see as a matter of course at overseas military air shows. But in that context, it's important, I think, to remember that a lot of overseas air arms hosting those shows don't have the degree of commitment to operations that the RAF has, and they often make a much smaller contribution to the display scene even than the RAF yeah. does now with its diminished array of display aircraft. So it's very hard to um, uh, to predict that, but certainly there doesn't seem to have been um, any reduction in public demand for air shows in recent years. Of course, some of the exceptions to that were the events that suffered last year because of the Red Arrows not being mm. available in uh, July and August um, and, and into September. And again that's something that we'll have to watch out for because um, some of the figures that were put forward by organizers for the impact that had on their crowd figures were very serious and really yeah and um, and there are not with the best will in the world the likes of us of course may be delighted to see Draken and Vigan performing in place of the Red Arrows but with the best will in the world they don't draw the crowds. Yeah. Do you, do you think that air shows are still the? It's, it's a figure that's that's often quoted. I've never actually found the source of it, at least not a, a modern source of it. Do you still think that air shows are the third or fourth most attended public events in the UK, COVID notwithstanding? There has been some more recent research done on this, and I can't remember off the top of my head the um, uh, um, the figures. I mean, they are clearly very substantially attended, with the proviso that for the free seafront events that make up a large proportion of that figure, and particularly nowadays with the reduction in the number of large airfield-based events where it's mm. impossible to measure the 
crowd figure with um, uh, the degree of reliability that it is, say, at an airfield-based show. Um, I don't know, but it, the crowds are clearly still very substantial, and from what I gather, um, ticket sales for events this year, prior to cancellations because of the pandemic, were excellent. Okay. Uh, whether that was because of expectations regarding VE and Battle of Britain commemorations, I don't know, but certainly they were very good. And it must be said, the figures we've been hearing for the restart of yes. for restart of the season are very good mm. as well, albeit in very different circumstances. Um, whether or not, I mean, I don't know how these figures were calculated. I mean, I don't know, for example, to what extent if you add up all forms of motorsport in the UK, whether they come close, all forms of... I suspect it was after football, wasn't it? I think it was after football and, um, I can't remember what else, festivals perhaps, or... Um, uh, I mean, I, I, yeah. I've heard that, that yeah. piece of information has been around since... I mean, probably. I mean, I since I started getting into it in 2011, I'm sure I saw people quoting it. So I'm pretty sure it must be out of date by now. But. Yeah, and of course, it, you know, let's face it. Other events, um, uh, other types of event, have the same problem measuring their. Um, yeah, uh, can have the same problem measuring their crowd figures. I remember, you know, I've always been a, a motorsport enthusiast, and um, uh, huge crowd figures were always quoted for the RAC Rally in the days when it went, you know, all around Scotland, Wales, and the north of England. And I read somewhere recently that um, uh, those figures were entirely nonsensical, and they basically counted <laughs> everyone whose house the route passed. Um, uh, and clearly, there's a bit more science goes into measuring the crowd at a seafront <laughs> at a yeah. seafront air show um, uh, but uh, no, there is still I, I would say very substantial demand for air shows what is important is going to be keeping people interested, keeping new generations of people interested and engaged with air shows unless there's uh, any other particular anecdotes or, or, or memories you want to share? Probably without context it might be difficult. Without <laughs> context it's difficult, I mean I've got lots of things I would <laughs> uh, happily talk about not live um, <laughs> um, uh, well, then, well then that's a good reason to stop recording here maybe. <laughs> we, we mentioned sort of the future of air shows um, obviously COVID-19 has been a, a huge impact on this year which no one could have predicted. What do you think the impact the long-lasting impact of um, uh, the accident at Shoreham has had on air shows? Well, obviously there are two clear impacts uh, in terms of what people see at air shows with regard to their content. One is the impact on display lines um, at, at, at a large number of venues, and the other has been in part the effect it's had on classic jet operations in the UK. Yes. Although it does have to be said that the decline in classic jet operations in the UK is by no means at all just down to Shoreham. Um, it was already in train before. I think the, cla the classic Air Force was sort of, um, it felt like it was on its last legs. In, in 2015 as a season you know, as a whole. Obviously mid-air had gone bust yeah, at the exactly. that season um, and there have you know, we've been, and I am biased because they're very good friends of mine, I think the Norwegians have made a fantastic contribution in the yes. Uh, yes. last few years um, often quite unsung but they have made a tremendous 
contribution and also done very well at bringing on new pilots. Obviously the Vulcan was time limited anyway um, at the end of that season and we all know what's happened with the um, Sea Vixen. Mm. Um, so uh, I, I don't think they, I don't think Shoreham had an effect in terms of diminishing public appetite for air shows and that was clear from the events that took place even in the very immediate aftermath in the remainder of 2015 where you might have thought that after such an appalling tragedy that there might have been a diminution um, and in fact there wasn't um, and so in that regard I don't think there was an effect. Obviously, then you know one could also talk about um, the effect it's had on secondary crowds, for example. I thought that was inevitable. I always, and that was an issue that a lot of organisers were already concerned mm. about. It does have to be said. It's only since then that we've seen measures taken to deal with them, um, but. The wider effects have been on display lines and classic jets. I think there are ways, obviously there are ways round the display line issue. Shuttleworth, after a suitable interval, was able to do very well with the mm -hmm. exemptions it gained. Clearly though, those are not practical everywhere. Um, and so, uh, similar types of venue, one doesn't see similar exemptions and of course you know, the CAA has not been minded to issue blanket exemptions um, I do think there are ways that within reason within reason regarding budgets and res other resources that organisers can regain some of the spectacle that is otherwise lost, diminished however one wants to put it by aircraft being forced to fly further from the crowd. An obvious one is formation routines. Um, it's why I've been so delighted to see the Ultimate Fighters. Yes, yeah. And the sort of routines that they put on, and, and you know, that we've seen from Air Leasing and uh, Air Leasing's other aeroplanes in other combinations, to name but one operator. Obviously, there are plenty of other operators who are able to do similar, but they have been especially active. <coughs> Um, aircraft restoration company as well and that to my mind is a good way of maximising resources if you have those resources in the first place um, yeah. on the grounds that it's putting something more immediately impressive in front of the crowd and diminishing the effect of say a solo Mustang having to fly that much further away um, so it can be mitigated if you have the resources at your disposal the classic jet issue is much harder and there is not as one British classic jet operator said to me the other year for an article in the magazine there's not an awful lot out there in practical terms that the CAA would agree to or which is a practical proposition for a restoration Do you think it's a case of just having to wait for without trying to put it a bit diplomatically but fit to quote be okay to ease regulations again no I don't think so personally um, I think that the um, the display line regulations that we have are probably here to stay 
um, whether we might see exemptions at other places um, uh, and for other acts, I don't know. But they have, don't forget, they've remained pretty static for four yeah. years now. Um, uh, and I think there's a sense that they are here to stay. Do you see the classic jet uh, scene bouncing back? Or do you think that's pretty much it now? I think they'll. there's the odd possibility without going into too many details as regards individual um, types. But, uh, uh, well, as I just said, the number of types that could possibly gain approval from the CAA is fairly limited. I would very much like to think that we'll see a hunter flying again. Um, I don't know whether the fact that we haven't seen a hunter flying at a UK display since 2015 is um, you know and obviously since the type was allowed once again to fly in civilian hands in the UK um, is down to organizers um, not being able to book the examples from say the Netherlands or Switzerland once the Dutch ones flew again or the Dutch single-seater flew again um, mm. because of issues around um, uh, pilot qualifications and the like or whether it's because they have consciously not wanted to have a hunter in their display uh, but I do hope that we will see one again um, the obvious gap is the lack of a meteor in uh, yes. civilian hands uh, Definitely. but again aircraft come and go two formerly airworthy in the UK meteors the T7 and the F8 were sold overseas. There's nothing that can be done about that. If buyers don't come forward in the UK to purchase those aeroplanes for operation, they are going to go overseas if buyers are found there. It's mm. a fact of life. Um, so I don't really see a huge expansion of the classic jet scene uh, in the UK from where we are now. I think the odd airframe, but not anywhere near going back to uh, where we were at, say, the early part of this decade. I, oh, I've said to the, to the others on um, previous podcasts, I'm, I'm a helicopter fan through and through before I'm a fixed-wing fan, or obviously I like all sorts. Um, what's been notable, actually, has been a, a sort of um, leaps forward in the classic helicopter scene, and that's been quite nice, not as a, as a, a, a to, to fill that gap left by classic jets, and I don't think that, that correlation means causation but it's it's um it's been good at least to see that brilliant and uh, you know the, particularly obviously with andrew whitehouse and with the army uh, the historic army aircraft like yeah terrific um and a number of private owners as well um uh, so yeah that has been been great and there's obviously as we know scope for still more to come with the likes of further seekings and the links yeah so um, it's, it's it's amazing. It He's going to have a bigger air force than some countries. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, the more capable one as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, but uh, don't let's also forget one thing about um, uh, to return to classic jets is that they're not recognisable, with one exception to the public, and the exception was the Vulcan. Yes, um, all efforts at holding regular classic jet dedicated shows um, in the UK pretty soon fell by the wayside 
um, those aircraft do not command the levels of public interest that, say, Spitfires do. And I think that's something that's incredibly difficult to override, no matter how often operators try and get their aircraft out on the circuit. I mean, Mike Collett tried for a long time to make the Air Atlantique Classic Flight, Classic Air Force work in various guises and to get the aircraft out there and in the end they had to be sold mm-hmm. do you think there's because there, there are some rumours um, at the moment I'm not tremendously optimistic given the current atmosphere but there are some rumours of um, Harriers being returned to an airworthy state I know that Art Knowles is selling his Sea Harrier in the US do you think that might be a, a machine that can command Ash audiences more than other classic jets. Oh, I, th- I do think the Harrier. Yeah, I think the Harrier is um, uh, is perhaps one that could. Yeah, definitely. Um, but you'd have to ask the CAA about yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah, why and the wherefores of its um, potential yeah. operation on the uh, UK register. But yeah, that is that is something that uh, that could. And actually, to mention piston types, the obvious thing I think that could command a great deal of attention in a few years time is a mosquito or mosquitoes yes Um, Yes. and I think it's actually looking increasingly likely that mosquitoes plural will be what we end up with funds and everything else permitting I think that could be a very exciting development Yeah. yeah very much so I mean I hope that that has been as interesting to listen to as it has for us to take part in it um thank you very much for coming on the show ben my pleasure thank you for having me thank you for inviting me no problem um and as always if you know anyone who would be interested in listening to this or any of the other episodes please do share the podcast around uh you can listen to us if you are not already on spotify itunes slash apple podcasts and soundcloud uh if you want to read any of our reviews of any of the shows that uh, some of which of course ben will have commentated at Uh, go to our website airshows.co.uk and to join in the discussion to to let us know what you think of this episode and and chat about airshows and aviation in general you can go to our forums at forums.airshows.co.uk nearly got that wrong Uh, so thanks for listening and hopefully you can join us for another episode